pronounce your name correctly for me. Susie Sikorsky. And you and I met, what, 2014 when you came to the UAE? Is that right? It was 2016. I just graduated college. I got a Fulbright scholarship to live in the United Arab Emirates and was researching and trying to dig into the old art history of the country. And so we were connected through a mutual friend at Zaid University. And that is where our path started. Okay, so no, wait, take it back a step. Something I love hearing people is sort of their backstory, their childhood. So how did you even get interested in Middle Eastern art, A? But B, how did you, I also wanna hear about how you got a Fulbright scholarship, because those are astounding. Yes, so, To paint you a picture, I am an American from New York. I'm not from Manhattan. I'm not from the Upper East Side West. I'm from Long Island, capital of suburbia. Grew up there, a mix between a Seinfeld and everybody loves Raymond. I mean, that's my life in a nutshell. I love it. And it's something that I am so proud to say that I'm from there. And it's funny when you try to put the puzzle pieces together and to backtrack. And my earliest childhood memories are sitting on my boardwalk and looking at the boats that were parked before entering the harbor and right near JFK Airport. And that is the closest, let's say, to an international life that I had, my mom would travel to Western Europe and would bring home, you know, stuffed animals from Germany or London, but that was really it. What got me into the Middle East was living in a post 9-11 culture. Very honest with you, you know, earliest memories during that time post 9-11 were very difficult for growing up in an area where, I mean, we weren't in Manhattan, but you had very many friends that had family or or we all maybe knew people that passed from 9-11 and it was in a way of addressing the wounds that this had caused the area where I was from. And I, instead, my earliest maps of the Middle East were during this time, post 9-11, and I wanted to learn about the history and culture of, of the region. And it only started later when I was in university that I had a chance to learn about Middle Eastern politics and history, took a sacred sacred text in the Middle East. I took all these different courses to try and understand about the culture, met people from the region and had just, you know, coffee or lunches just to learn more of people from Morocco, Saudi Arabia, all over. And I only found out that Middle Eastern art was actually existing through my time. I interned at Christie's Auction House in their post-war contemporary art department early on. Loved art, was learning about, I was studying international politics at, at Fordham University in New York and ended up visiting an exhibition in Leila Heller Art Gallery in 2014 and heard an artist speak, an Egyptian artist speak, and it was the first time that I connected my interests in politics, history, art, all together, and it was like this aha moment that this exists, and this is an actual path that I want to take. I was overwhelmed, excited, 
sprinkled with youth and and your ambition of what you want to do in life and it was like this was it this is what i wanted to do and i the rest is is history in terms of of being washed up on the shores of dubai and and finding myself here six seven years later and never looking back okay good overview but let's take a step back actually one of the things i'm interested in with a lot of people is basically how did they get made so were your parents creative did you have good teachers like what was the thing that even led you down the interest in the creative fields i would say my mom is very creative it's not what she does as a profession and it's it's very different she's in insurance but my my mom is was drawing interior design fashion i i was very much well acclimated to yeah, I'm an interior design. I, I though was always so crafty. My father owned a printing company and I was actually exposed at a young age to all the facets of the printing industry. So I was obsessed with bookmaking, paper. Imagine as a kid, you had full access to any type of paper you wanted. I had a business card since I was like five years old. I wanted to be a doctor. I had a doctor business card. I had shiny holographic paper colored and I would construct homes out of paper. I mean, I, I made my inner imagination was through, you know, being at my father's printing company, um, you know, and, and being able to go, if I could be assisted by an adult and go in the back and see the Heidelberg printing presses and, you know, the massive cutter, I used to call it the chopper and I still don't know what it's actually called, but I used to say the chopper that would cut like a thousand sheets in one full swoop. And this was like my playground. Often called a guillotine cutter. Yeah. A guillotine cutter. Yeah. It was, and I still, when I smell ink, I have memories of my, my father's printing industry, printing company. You know, I was, I felt like I was part of the crew. Sure. When I smell sherry wine or sherry, I don't even know what sherry is wine. When I smell sherry, I think of uh, church because that's what the wine that my dad served as a minister. He, he used sherry as the communal wine. So yeah, sense memories are very strong. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Wait, now you said you did an internship at Christie's? I did an internship. It was very early on when I was just learning about arts, Twenty. 13 of the fall and I interned at in the post-war contemporary art department. It was my first like, real exposure to art and it was an amazing opportunity to be able to work with the team there and prepare for their sale. There was a triptych of Lucian Freud that was sold that year. I was sick. Ironic enough, it's always that moment. I had the flu literally the day of that evening sale that I helped at least be part of the team to prepare for. And I was sick, which was so frustrating. There was a a dog, a balloon dog from, why am I drawing a blank? Jeff Koons. Yeah, there was a Jeff Koons orange balloon dog that was sold. It was a really exciting. And I helped write a part of the piece to a Warhol 1964 flowers. So it was a very interesting exposure for me. And I, I won't forget it. I, I worked with a team that was at the time, Amy Capalazzo is now at Sotheby's was, was there. And she had told me, you know, I, I was at the time mixed between studying in Morocco or Dubai. And it was almost the sense of just like, go for it, take a chance, 
travel and and I did and I I went to Sharjah for my junior year. I didn't go to Madrid, I didn't go to a London. I went all the way to Sharjah and had the most important turning point in my professional exposure to the region, my personal life. I mean, it was like a whole coming of age in one full swoop back in Sharjah. So I'm sorry, I, I'm giggling in the background because you're super young and yet you're talking about like turning point in my career. Like you don't, yeah, your career is less than 10 years, right? Like you don't really have like career. Understood. You been in decades kind of career, right? Completely, completely understand. Okay. I know that my, I'm, I'm still just a neophyte in the massive art industry that there is. But I will say, being probably this New Yorker that I've been working since I was out of the womb, you know, you're just like thrown in to the workforce right away. And I was a very ambitious student that had no idea about, I had no contacts here. I started from ground zero. I started and in introduced myself and, and I would work at these galleries and Every way that I could, I exhausted myself in learning about the scene through collaborating with galleries at art fairs and working with them to help sell pieces. I would be writing in regional art magazines like uh, Harper's Bazaar, Art Arabia. Um, I started this Instagram at the time that was just a way to remember artists' names. I mean, for me, Mohammed and Ahmed are not the Joe and James of the US. And it's like, it was a completely different language. I wasn't learning our I was learning Arabic at the time, but it was more of I mean I was deepening French, but Arabic was very new to me. So it was I really started from the beginning and and being in Sharjah and studying abroad, even just as a junior in college, was extremely important because every trip that I did make, and I remember it, you know, from my hands, these trips of introducing myself to the scene and to the artists and then writing my thesis on UAE art history, it was like a waterfall effect of every single person I met helped me to get to where I am today. Indeed. Now, wait, okay, go back a step because Fulbrights, I, I want to get a little bit on that because I've had a couple guests that have gotten Fulbrights. I, I, I was aware of Fulbrights when I was in high school, but nobody really said, yes, you could apply for that. Like, so like, I knew they existed, but I didn't really understand what they were. So like, from what I understand, it's basically like you apply anybody that can apply and it's, and then they just like fund you to go and do research on whatever it is that you have a fascination with for one year or something to that effect. Is that about right? Yes. So there is an English teaching assistant Fulbright. There's also the independent research Fulbright. And so I did the latter. I remember the pre-departure orientation when we were all together with all the Fulbrighters. We obviously were sectioned within the region. Middle East was one, but you had people from all over the world and many, many people were English teaching assistants. So they would travel to these places a lot where you were either, we, we were Fulbright students who basically just came out of undergrad. And then you had Fulbright students scholars that were, let's say, applying this to their doctorate and were, you know, more, well, you know, older, more experienced, whatever it was. So we had the mix, but I obviously gravitated towards those that had their own independent research. And I started this idea 
right after I got back my junior year, I was in Sharjah and then Paris. And I started to be connected to many of the different artists in the UAE. I naturally have this passion for interviewing artists, for being around them in their studio, learning about what makes them tick. And, and I, could, I could speak to them for hours about not only their current practice, but even about just the regional art history. And so I realized this is an interesting topic that I wanted to explore. There was an opportunity to apply for the Fulbright early senior year, and it turned into the application for the Fulbright evolved into my thesis on UAE art history. I was able to do a few field trips to the UAE to help put the pieces together of interviewing these artists. So that was how my senior year looked. And, and it was around the same time of finding out I got the Fulbright was when I was graduating. It was very last minute. Everything was on edge. And I ended up getting the Fulbright the same month that I graduated undergrad. And that was an exciting chapter, a new door opening for me. All right. So then you land in Dubai and you were a bit lost. This is when I met you, but you pretty quickly got your sort of a sense of what you wanted to do. And you've ended up creating this thing, Mideast Art, which is its own online digital platform. And in the, the process of doing that, you also got yourself a job working at Christie's in Dubai. So kudos on both. But let's start with Mideast Art. So tell us a little bit about what that is and what's its sort of mission. So as I said in the beginning, Mideast Art started initially as an Instagram. But in a way, I loved Instagram because it was almost forming this archival documentation in the beginning i actually started it and would and would use like uh, iphone apps to photoshop artwork in my current surroundings i would put i remember like i was laying down on my couch and putting hadia shafi and her works in the sky and her like circular scroll works like this was the initial it was like this artistic experimentation it was my own project, mind you. Fast forward to now where I was studying abroad, I'm starting to document the exhibitions I'm seeing all under the umbrella of Middle Eastern art. Once I got the Fulbright, I realized that the basis of what I wanted to do was interviewing and documenting all of these pioneer artists from the UAE and of course expanding to the Gulf region. It's a personal interest. I do find, you know, naturally the cultures are very intertwined. And for me, I loved learning and documenting about these early stories of when these art scenes were starting and the challenges and how that happened. So Midi Start was a way to publish all of the research that I was doing with the Fulbright. It was a repository of the short films I was creating, the interviews I was creating, the publications I was working towards in terms of, of writing for these regional art magazines. That was what Midi Start was. And then it evolved of, of not only putting all this documentation, but also putting critical analysis and applying it and grounding it in 
regional modern art history, which was reinforced through my time working at Christie's. Part of the fun of like talking and catching up with you and talking to you about this is that I, you know, I, I know you in a passing-ish kind of way. We've, we've, we've run into each other for almost a decade now kind of thing. But like, I would love to hear because like you are a young, successful person in the arts. And I look back on my career and I'm like, well, fuck, I obviously did something horribly wrong because she's way ahead of me. So as a listener to this podcast, I would be like, oh, I okay, I need to listen to this person because they did something right that I, me as the host, did wrong. <laughs> I can only tell you, Matthew, my ethos to how I'm living right now. You know where I am. I left my whole family moving halfway across the world, not knowing anyone from the region. I have a distant relative in Portugal who I could say maybe is a halfway point, but I haven't, you know, we haven't met. My closest relatives are New York and New Jersey. And there is something, a drive in me that is keeping me here. And I can only tell you it is, and it's not an obsession, but it is my passion. It is what keeps me here. It's having interviews with artists, finding commonalities in cultures is what drives me. It's what keeps me going. It's what makes me feel this internal child and questioning of feeling similarities or feeling curiosities and exhausting myself in asking questions and putting puzzle pieces together. This is what keeps me feeling human. Now, you, but you said that Mideast art ended up being something where you could sort of quantify some things, uh, sort of statistical data and things like this. What kind of outcomes have you gotten from that? Because for the listeners, like I also lived in the United Arab Emirates for a while, and it's it's a tough region to get concrete data in. Like you can get stories, you can get like, oh, you know, so and so did something at some point in the seventies, kind of thing. Like it's very hard to get quantifiable data um, from at least in the UAE. So you know, what have you been able to sort of garner from all your conversations? Well, I mean, in terms of, I, I would say I shy less from statistical data as more as understanding the overarching numbers, like a numbers in, in who was practicing art at the time. It was such as like, in terms of how you quantify the research that I was doing, particularly in the UAE, there was very few artists that were practicing artists, let's say in the 70s and 80s, and very few women that were practicing at the time. There are, and, and those that were, like Dr. Najat Maki, Mona Khajar, Fatma Luta, they all have very unique stories as to how they sustain and carry the momentum in their practice, all in very unique and different ways. What interests me the most was understanding what made an artist successful in understanding why they were successful, whether it was the works, the, the compositions that they created, what they were inspired by. When I speak with many locals here, 
works that are more historical, classical compositions of, let's just say, Bastakia, such as Abdelkader al race, which might not have as much demand, maybe as much demand internationally, if you look at it, putting it, let's say, in an auction setting for now. Mind you, we have in the past, and it's been well-received in many instances, but I'm telling you on a level of human connection, when you have someone from the region looking at a work that references where they were from and where their families were from, it's an immediate connection and immediate gratification of this reminds me of my home. And so you have artists that did that and you have had artists that did that. And then you had others like Hassan Sharif that were jumping in the desert and using found objects and pieces from the garbage and constructing these monstrosities that to actually security guards threw out the works because they didn't know what it was. I mean, there was a massive gap in the society of what contemporary art practices were, what performance, installation, that type of work. But it's a very interesting mix between those that prefer the traditional classical compositions versus those that like the installations and the performance art and all of that. But I think that was most interesting. And in my thesis for my undergrad, I really wanted to choose and pinpoint, you know, certain artists that flourished during particular times and why based on what they were producing. So that was most interesting for me of, of seeing why certain artists gain more recognition during a certain time. Mohammed Kazem, based on the, the changes of, of the landscape of the UAE, started taking photographs of himself and flags behind a changing landscape of the UAE, which was interesting. And he was taught under Hassan Sharif and was doing a lot in terms of measuring his body or, or measuring himself, which is something that Hassan did as well. But it was interesting for artists to document the changing landscape. And, and Abdul Qadir al-Rais also did it as well in his work. And then you had artists that were influenced by nature and by their studio space was outdoors. Muhammad Ahmed Ibrahim was part of that five group that was started in the 90s. And you see many artists such as Hassan that used found objects and, and would create these almost creature-like beings and be out in the mountains and using the, the material of the land and their studio space was more outdoors. Okay, but I always found it, like, keep in mind, so I was there and I was teaching my students and there was, there was a difficulty with the acceptance. I don't know if acceptance is the right word, but the appreciation slash purchasing, collecting of Middle Eastern art outside of the Middle East. Like, it seemed like it was very much, but, and don't get me wrong, every region is sort of the same. Like, Americans collect American artists, Europeans collect European artists. Like, so it's not, I'm not sort of picking on them. But there seems to be, like, a push to try to make them more international, uh, or at least internationally recognized or collected in the past, I'd say, like, 10 years or so. So, like, is that 
working? Is it is it being achieved in the market? Well, you have different, you have the, the primary market, which are the galleries, which you start seeing now more recently, artists from the region being represented. And this has been something since, you know, the last 10 years of, of galleries or, or more of galleries representing artists and participating in international fairs or having satellite space abroad other than Dubai, whether it is it was in Beirut or in, I don't know, in London, you know, New York. And many of these artists gained exposure through that, which was important. And then you had, as, as I said, the fairs before pandemic times, which were extremely, extremely important in helping make these artists be better known internationally. Christie's and the auction houses, so we started 2006, were really important in highlighting and, and cultivating a regional and then ultimately being an international house, a global market for these artists. It was really some of the first time that artists were being given a platform and recognition within a larger market sphere. We had our separate category of Middle Eastern art, but it was at the at the time now everything is more digital, but you know you had still these live sales, but it still was part of this larger international recognition, let's say, of the Middle Eastern artists. And it's definitely an important aspect when you are an artist, not only to consider local, regional, but ultimately international exposure. So I think now given online and the digital enhancements that it has the accessibility of finding an artist in yemen for instance is actually easier if you are able to have the right platform to do it for instance as this let's say through midistar i've now been receiving a lot of art of artists from areas that I would have never been exposed to before. I've had an artist in Baghdad, in Al Ain, actually, that because of the online and what I've been able to do and build this platform, it's been able to attract artists and creatives that I would have never necessarily have met. But I do, to get back to your point of, of building a market for an artist and, and a building a platform is really essential. I think the traditional gallery model is changing where you have artists that can showcase their works in their own Instagram and be able to attract interest in their works or potential sales just through that some that's a yeah. very hard slog to like be your own brand ambassador and run your own social media profiles of it's, course. it's yeah it's an industry in and of itself quite honestly as far as i'm concerned okay now to the thing that really fascinates me christie's i have known of auction houses probably since I was like 10 years old because I used to see them and hear about them. My parents used to get the catalogs, all this kind of stuff. How does it work? 
I have no idea. I've never, I don't think I've ever even had a conversation with somebody that works at an auction house. So please like start me from stupidity, um, the basics. How does it work? Okay. So as an auction house, we have normal in traditional times, the live auction. It's where everyone wants to be. You have, you mentioned catalogs. Everyone remembers the catalog days of when you have it in the mail and you look through and you flip through and essentially as a specialist i am part of a greater team that works on helping to source works for the sales as well as ultimately selling during the sale and so okay, stop wait wait stop that part right there source work now because i've heard stories and this is why i like really have a fascination with it obviously collectors who own prominent pieces and stuff are the ones that you want because they're going to bring in the most amount of money. And of course, in the end, this is all about money. So that's the, that's one aspect, but I've heard stories about living artists also participating in secondary uh, sales and things like this. Like, is it only collectors or collections that are sort of your sources or do you source for directly from living artists? I mean, listen, in the past, and you, we've heard these uh, examples with Damien Hirst and, and all of these artists that have actually done it. We don't traditionally do that. Normally, we work with collectors or galleries, or it's it's essentially through the secondary or potentially primary market that we do, but it's never really driven through artists. So then how do you choose? So like, So let's say you get a selection of a, a hundred different pieces that could be put into your uh, auction. How do you say, okay, these are worthy of being in the auction and these are not worthy of being in auction? Well, like anything, there's trends and there's certain areas or regions that people are looking at right now. Right now, what what is something people are looking into is the global south. I mean, it's across the board. You see it art to buy that I'd highlighted, there's a lot looking into North Africa, Morocco, Tunisia, these areas. So, you know, it's, it's the, the auctions is part of a wider ecosystem of the art scene that is fueled and reinforced both by commercial and non-commercial activities. If there's an institutional show of an artist like Fahral Nisa Zaid at the Tate Modern, it will be a very important speaking point and aspect as to why people would want to collect works from this artist because it helps ground them within a wider internationally recognized institution, which will essentially give value both intrinsic and extrinsic to the work of why people would want to buy it. Ultimately, if you're buying a work at an auction house, of course you like it, you know, you want to love the work. But it's also a tens of it's it's an asset. You want to invest in this to see that ultimately it will be in the long term appreciate in value. Not all the time. I mean, essentially, we are still a very young niche emerging market that needs a lot of time. But you would like if you're buying a work of art from let's say an Egyptian modern artist, you're you're assured that what you're paying for has strong value because whether it's recent prices, but also in looking at and educating yourself and looking at like what Egyptian modern art was 
to the scene and how that has impacted and formed the foundation, let's say, of modern Arab art, in the same way that Iraq has or, or Lebanon, these art communities and these very important artists that have been well integrated or that were working alongside many important artists in Paris, in London, at the turn of the century, in these modern art circles. So your role, which by the way, tell me your exact position title these days. I'm an associate specialist in Christie's in Dubai and their Middle Eastern Modern Contemporary Art Department. We work alongside the post-war and contemporary art team. And just recently, we've merged the categories of 2021 Impressionist Modern Post-War Contemporary Art, which actually was a language we were speaking well beforehand because our Middle Eastern team encompasses modern, which could be early 20th century up until today. So we speak both languages. I can understand Impressionist Modern Specialists as well as post-war contemporary. We're well integrated within the, the teams that are obviously internationally speaking in terms of, of working to source works, not only helping in the Middle Eastern category, but assisting other categories for works in their sales, given that you know Dubai is a hub in terms of clients who might have works from different categories that they're interested in speaking with other specialists. So I could also be not only working with the Middle Eastern team, but almost as a conduit between these other departments. Wow. So many things brought up in there. All right. <laughs> so when you're, okay, so let's go back to the, let's say you, okay, so you had the hundred pieces that could have been in the sale for that season. You've edited it down to, how many pieces end up in your general season? Depends. It could be 50, 60, 70, but at the same time, we had over 100, 120, two parts to a sale before I was there. But since I've been, it's normally under 100. Yeah, it, it varies. Well, see, like, okay, because me, I'm all I see are the press releases about the things that sell for hundreds of millions of dollars. But those are more or less, those are the rarity in the, the auction houses, right? I mean, it's, you know, you'll have like 90 things in a, in a sale that are going to sell for moderate price points. And then you might have that one, maybe two that sell for outrageous points. Or is it, am I getting it wrong? No, it, it, it depends. You always have a star work or two in the sale that's a highlight piece you know we we had our auctions in november and did very well on two works broke the record for samia halabi for close to half a million us dollars and mohammed balahi a moroccan artist both of those works did well and it was a great highlight other works did also well they could go above the high estimate so essentially, to backtrack so you understand, when we can sign a work, we speak with, let's say, the collector who has a work, and we, we provide a value for that work, which let's say is 100 to 150,000 pounds that we decide to price the work, and we put the work in the sale. This, the work is part of let's say a 60 work sale and we help market the work. We have a digital e-catalog. We have it, let's say in a viewing room, we help this storytell and narrate the work, which I think online has presented a very unique opportunity to 
really dig deep and, and share further texts and details about the work. Because when we had the physical auction catalog, there was always, let's say, a page limit. We had to adhere to a certain page limit. And now we have full reign to help share more details about the work, which has actually been helpful for us. How are those evaluations done? So, like, you know, I mean, a, a collector comes to you saying, hey, I want to sell this piece. They could probably say, hey, I paid this much for it back then. I believe it's, you know, up to, uh, you know, now valued at this. But like, how do you come to that? Like, I've always wondered, like those minimum bids and the, you know, the estimated the you know, amount of money. Like, are, are, do is it the collector that sort of dictates that or, or is it the experts at Christie's that dictate that? It's a mix of different factors for us to value a work. Of course, you want to know the purchase price that the collector paid for the work. You want to know the primary market for the artist, if it's a living artist or even you know a deceased artist in terms of what their normal, their price points are from galleries. And you also want to take into account recent sales of, of what recent comparable works are selling in the past sales across the board, across all different auction houses, taking into advantage the, you know, the, the economic situation at the time or getting a feel for overall the appetite of what people would be paying for of the work. So walk me through a day in your life. So the life of a, I forgot your full title because it was ridiculously long. Associate specialist. Thank you. Day in the life of an associate specialist at Christie's. What do you do? Sit around, have coffee, chat with some artists, maybe meet a few collectors. Yeah. I wish the artists were part of it, but the artist is like after Christie's because my normal interactions are, are rarely with artists for, for Christie's. It's more of my Mideast art life. I deal a lot with, we, we you know work with building the sales, reviewing works, we could consider doing valuations. There's a little, there's different aspects to how auction houses function. We have our auctions that we do, we have private sales, we do valuations for clients who let's say have a multi-category valuation and we provide a package valuation for the client. So the normal day in the life is never the same. It's constantly running on international time zones. So it, it can get pretty interesting in terms of, of the day-to-day. -day. I'm, I'm constantly plugged into London, which luckily is now a three-hour time difference. But London, New York, even the West Coast in the US, and also even sometimes Hong Kong. So it's, it's a constant roller coaster of dealing with different time zones. Speaking with clients about works, you know, speaking internally with with the teams, understanding, gaining in insight of the market, meeting, of course, with gallery owners, going to fairs normally, and and doing work, field trips to these different areas in the normal circumstances before COVID was extremely important to understand the different micro markets or the different regions. Going to Beirut, going to Istanbul, going to Cairo. Kuwait, Bahrain, these were all places that essentially post-quarantine were really, really important in terms of, of gaining insight into what's happening, you know, that, that are in these different countries. There is no set schedule to my days 
it's very much in terms of if I have to, first of all, I, I run on international clock because speaking with clients and colleagues that are all over the world, this is my life. It's a roller coaster of dialogue that's, you know, from London to Paris, Hong Kong, New York, Los Angeles, and, and in, all in between. I do a lot of time of, obviously, a very important part is preparing for upcoming auctions, working on, you know, different projects that we're doing with the teams, working on, let's say, valuations or private sales. It's non-exhaustive in terms of what I'm sharing to you. It's, there's, there's so many different projects that we're doing. But of course, with auctions, we always have that set goal of when the auctions will be. Right now, our upcoming sale will be in October. So we're planning on building for the October sale right now. And of course, with other different related projects. So that's a normal day in, in life. There is a lot of different overlapping, busy angles at all angles. Okay, but wait. So you said your last sale was in November, and you're saying you're working towards the October. So you're so one sale for you could take up to a year to prepare for, or longer. Well, we had initially when I started had two sales per year, and now we've changed in terms of changing our strategy and what we're doing, and having. Right now, one sale per year with different projects that we're going to be working on. I'm going to ask a stupid question based on the idea that I'm Joe Schmo in the general public, and I see, like, let's say, the Salvador Mundi, whatever, you know, selling. And then there's always this thing of like, oh, it sold for this much, and there's this sell this auction fee, this nature of this auction fee. Now, I want to start with. I understand where that comes from. I, I get it. So like I am no way questioning it. But I would imagine that a lot of people in the world are like, what the fuck is this like 20% that's added on to the end of the whole thing? Do you have a way that you could sort of explain why that exists for people that maybe don't understand it? Well, I mean, in a way, people come to Christie's because we have accessibility to clients that they might not have the ability to sell the work to. We're a marketplace at the end of the day. So people entrust their works with us in the assurance that we will market it to the right targeted people. We will we will present it in a very beautiful way. We have our e-catalogs and normally our physical catalogs. We promote and discuss the works. We help give it value so that it's like this reinforcing idea of, of collectors and, and all people involved in this, it's it's like a communal effort to help build the market, especially of a very emerging market, to build and grow a platform for the market. So in terms of why the premium would be added, that's a way of looking at it. You know, we're helping in terms of marketing the work and finding a targeted buyer on a specific date. Do you know what I mean? Like you can be assured that by consigning in this sale, it you will hope that the work does sell because of course there are times when the work doesn't for different reasons. You know, there's a whole factors in play, but more or less you you know that at that time that is when the work will sell. 
beyond that, it's just also like you all have overhead. You have to pay to have designers design these online catalogs. Mm-hmm. They have to pay your salary. They, you have offices that you have to pay for and air condition and do all these things too. I mean, you're a business and if the sale price is the sale price, you still, it's like you still have to make some money and you can't take it out of the sale price or people won't right. appreciate that. So like, I get it. Don't give me, you know, so like I'm on your side, but a lot of people I, I talk to are like, what is this extra thing? And I'm like, it's not an extra thing. It's just a thing that's there. It's the price of doing business is really what it is. Yeah. East start. All right. So the first thing that, that when I think about your work in the Mid-East start, so you're from New York, you simply have an interest in let's call it Middle Eastern art. You ended up in the UAE. Why the UAE? Like there are some other great historical, rich cultures in the Middle East. Why the UAE as this this sort of focus of this? Well, it was it was to be honest, I spoke with a professor, a professor when I was right before I was about to go, and I told her my dream was to work in the market. And I actually years ago wanted to always be a specialist at an auction house and I told her about it. I was supposed to live in Morocco and she ended up saying it's better to go to Dubai. It's the hub for at least the market of the region and you can always go to Morocco but in terms of understanding the greater market at play, go to Dubai. So I did and that's where I, but I didn't go to Dubai, I went to Sharjah because the only school affiliated with the UAE was AUS in Sharjah and so that's how it all happened. But I wanted to share another aspect of what MIDI-START is because the digital component and how I've curated my stories and how I've cultivated a personality, I find now through the many projects and the curated posts that I've done on the Instagram itself, I have a website component, people really feel like they know me. And it's probably the same way as you when you listen to your podcast, as I've done, you feel like you have a sense of who this person is. And for me, people who I have started to be in contact with recently, they feel like they're like, we love what you do. We we know exactly what fuels you, your storytelling, your creative and your crafty and and how I run Midi Start is essentially through storytelling. And I have a lot of different posts that I do featuring artists from the modern times and old archival photographs helping to educate and form a narrative and an archive of the older art scene. I do studio visit features where I show an artist in their studio with a quote from the artist. I did a big quarantine series during the whole pandemic, sharing just artists and their quotes of whatever they wanted to share. I do posts that are combining Middle Eastern and Western artists and finding parallels visually and conceptually in their works. It fuels itself, you know, it's like a constant archive that's building on my current research that I'm doing. And my time at Christie's to get back actually helps build a foundation for my knowledge of art history of the region 
understanding who are the most important artists and collectors who have helped be patrons for the artists, both regionally and internationally. So this has helped form a basis for me to really be critical and understand what is good art, both from the Arab world, from Iran, the diaspora, and it's really important and has formed a good way for me to identify and put feeders out as to which artists that we should really be looking into, which artists that were traveling abroad, well-informed of the international art scene, but also addressing very immediate local concerns of their respective communities in Damascus, in Casablanca, in Baghdad, in Dubai, since the 60s, 70s. You brought up a point that I have been harping on since I was teaching in the UAE, which is when I had my students, I used to, they, I, my students were all female Emiratis. So just a basis for those listeners. I always had an issue with the fact that when they put their work out into the public, they would define it. They would self-define it as Muslim female art. And so I have this question because like you just said, what makes good art? But yet it, I feel like, and this is not, again, not specific just to the Middle East because people are doing this all over the world where they are saying, I'm a queer American artist or I'm a whatever, you know, giving these little subcategories of things. So like, why is it that like, let's say in this case, because we're talking to you, Middle Eastern art needs that additional thing of saying not only is this good art but it's good middle eastern art for me when you read and research a lot of these older artists from the region they did not want to be categorized they did want to understand maybe what forms the basis of art from their regions understanding how do they blend their experience and formative years studying in Paris or London and then coming back and trying to apply their cultural and indigenous roots within the work that they're producing that might also be of a language that could be interpreted internationally. These were the debates that were going on when these artists returned, when they came back to Beirut or to Baghdad, to Cairo. And it's interesting because, I mean, many of these artists' writings that I'm reading were very open-minded and did not want to be boxed and put in a box of, I want to be labeled this way. At the same time, though, why, let's say, with a category like us in Middle Eastern art, we need in a way to help build and cultivate the regional art scene. And you cannot just do it from zero to 100 and throw in these artists that have not, let's say, had a sustained yet continued market within the region. And so that's why, let's say, the Middle Eastern art category is so important right now to help build on. You know, that's, that's reinforced and fostered by a growing scene within the region. It's tough. I mean, I'm not uh, taking, it's not a light conversation because. It's not, this is not a light conversation. At this point, it's turned kind of dark. Yeah, I know, but it's fine. The, but but like, why? Because I'm, I, I, it's not easy, Matthew. It's not easy. Like 
It's not easy, but I mean, the tough questions are the most interesting questions. How do you take something that is sort of self-segregating? Like, and it could be anybody. It could be a Berlin artist, a Norwegian artist, an African artist that sort of self-segregates saying, I'm an African, you know, what, or a Ugandan, this kind of thing. So like, I, I have this issue of like, I, okay, let me take it back a step. I have this issue that says the arts world is already a niche thing in the grand scheme of the whole world. Then within that niche of just people who either produce or collect or are interested in the arts, then we start segregating ourselves even more. So only people that either produce or make Asian art or African art or Americans art, whatever. And then even within that, we even get more segregated, like feminist art or black art or whatever. Like, And I personally feel that that is detrimental to the art world as a whole, because we're already small and we're segregating ourselves even more. I would love to see us try to simply find a way to be more on merit of like, it's good art, period. I don't care if it's good art from Europe or Asia or Africa, it's good. It, it's skillful, it's you know quality, the concepts are whatever. But we seem to be adding more layers of separation by giving all these additional elements of like like now like i have to define myself as like what a cis man i don't even know what the thing is but you know there are all these extra things and i i feel like it's hurtful to the art world to continue mm. to do this kind of stuff but i'm a utopian kind of person like i want us all to get along yeah that's my two cents. There you go. It's interesting. But I find my posts of combining Middle Eastern and Western has really been exciting for viewers, but also me, because it's allowing me to find the commonalities in the aesthetics. Maybe they they've they studied at the same school. Or they're inspired by the same artists. They're speaking the same language. And I would literally put in these posts, and as I do, de Kooning meet Yektai. I would always I would always start with the Western artists. I always do because in a way of saying like, you should meet him, not Yektai should meet him. You know, I want to to ground it in a way of saying this is a Middle Eastern artist that you should look at de Kooning. I do a lot with music. At the end of the day, as I said earlier, I'm an American and I cannot negate my American culture. And if I'm listening to a song with Bob Dylan or Crosby, Stills and Nash, it will always remind me of the fact that I am from New York. And when I'm looking at a work, for instance, I, I posted a picture of an Egyptian artist, Haben Nada, and I thought of Michael Jackson right away. I'm not going to try and force myself to think of something else because when I look at it, I'm thinking of dancing and grooving to beats of Michael Jackson and playing disco in my apartment and feeling like I'm a kid again on the beach with my family. There's a deeper feeling and sensation to these posts that I'm doing, particularly the Eastern and Western, because for the first time, I feel like I'm part of the conversation 
because it could be really difficult not coming from the region, being an outsider on the on the periphery and how it's been five years I'm living here now almost. How do I feel relevant? How do I feel related? And part of this when I am not from the region. So to get back to it, it's normally a very emotional feeling to post these, which which sounds crazy. I mean, you post something and it's, it's like a, it's like a very meditative process where I post it. I'm, and I listen to the song afterwards that I played and it, it gets me really emotional. It gets me really in a different headset where it's for the first time combining both worlds and people comment on the song, they love it. And, and normally and ironic enough, many of the songs that I choose were produced right around the same time that the artwork was produced could be in the 60s, 70s, 80s. So that's a recent avenue or direction that I started to look into. And as I said earlier, even with Star, it's doing a lot of critical analysis and review of modern art from the region. And so I did this whole quarantine series and I did this whole write-up on NGF Latoon, who was actually in jail in the 50s in Egypt. And I felt like I was in my own prison cell during the quarantine. And I talked about Hassan Sharif and his performance works. And I felt like I was doing this conceptual Fluxus inspired performance in my old apartment, looking at all of the floorboards. And and I felt like I was measuring myself. And so what attracts me now more than ever is feeling a part of the conversation, feeling like what my sensation and what I sense matters. And my participation in this appreciation of the work, whether it's through music, through writing, I'm a creative writer, I have books that I've written personally, sharing this. I sometimes feel like I'm internalizing an artist deep down because the girl that was creating miniature books when I was a kid is still the same today. And if I'm stressed, I create books like mini books nice okay two quick questions the do you have your own art collection ironic enough only of artwork that artists have gifted me nothing yet which is coming at a good point because i do feel like i want to start investing maybe in a work on paper something small which i i do feel i i want to invest in a work on paper because it's a very intimate process it's a very delicate material that I would like to and and more or less the price point is always a bit less than work on canvas so it has its it's but there is a sense of intimacy when you have a work on paper oh, I'm I believe that a works on paper is the sort of the uh, the entry level for starting to collect because it's you know, it's more affordable in general you can get something from a bigger named artist that uh, that is a better price point yeah I, I mean same with photography versus like paintings or sculptures kinds of things also you know works on paper entry level kind of stuff 
nuts and bolts. I want to hear. Okay, so you are a full time employee at Christie's, but but you have this. We'll call it at this moment passion project of Mid East art. How do you? find the time or the funding to be able to pull that off because a lot of people in the world you know they have great ideas but it's being able to f- allocate or choose to put that time and that energy into it what's your rationale slash funding model for that mm, the secret recipe i think since getting my fulbright and being here on my own having to schedule my days when no day was the same, building something from the ground up, being creative about it has helped me. And I think with the Fulbright and with the quarantine, I almost just reverted back to my Fulbright self. I was able to be on my own and be in a room and figure out what I wanted to do and map out projects that I wanted to do, interviews with artists I wanted to do, mapping out collaborations with different art institutions, doing maybe podcast series, or I did it with the UAE Embassy in Washington, D.C., a artist interview four-part discussion with interviewing artists during this time. I'm very curious and how I find the time, and as I started earlier, it is my passion, Matthew. And so I will always make time for it. It's not something that, you know, it's like another job. It's, it's part of me and the friends I make and the people I surround myself with are part of this art community in one way or another. They appreciate arts. They are artists. They're curators. So there is no right way of telling you how I'm scheduling my Mideast art. If I feel like I want to share to my audience what I'm feeling, I'll craft a story. There is no, I wish it was easier said than done. And I've tried it of saying Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I'm going to do this at this hour. And I'm going to, no, like it's, there is so much chaos to the days, especially getting out of this in still semi quarantine. But I will be honest. I mean, there was a point. It was a rough patch after I got back. My father had COVID. It was doing okay now. But I really sought connection and dialogue with people. And I started to post questions on my Instagram. Literally, what is missing in the art world? Or what are your top three works that you'd want to invest in? Or, you know, whatever it was, it was interesting questions. You're out on, you want to have dinner with an artist who's deceased or living, who would you want? And the amount of interaction, people really engaged with the content and it was interesting. And so I'm at this point just experimenting with what gap needs to be filled, what's missing in the art scene. Maybe it's critical discourse or questioning or, Am I doing this right? Or yeah, as a perfect example, I mean, people to people connection and asking these basic questions that are not being addressed. And so I want to help form a community of people, both from the region and internationally that are also asking the same questions. All right. So what are the future plans? 
I want to build further in MIDI start. I want to interact with artists and start speaking and having discussions of artists and artists together and be part of the creative process and actually feel like I'm part of the conversation when artists are producing their works and, and being part of their inner process and, and helping. It's like, I want to be part, I want to be in the studio digitally now when they're pr producing art. I want to be part of that conversation. Mind you, it's a very intimate demand. You know, a studio space is a very private space, but I have been blessed with connections with artists that have invited me or feel comfortable with me being part of this very private process of producing arts. So going forward, I want to build on these conversations with helping artists meet other artists or helping artists meet collectors or helping artists meet other artists from around the world and helping widen their exposure and their understanding and their building a network and a community of people that are interested in learning about artists from the region. It's all based on the focal point of, of the regional scene and then sharing this both in terms of the contemporary practices as well as the modern art history, which is something that needs a lot of work and tender love and care in helping share and showcase the breadth and diversity of the regional modern art history here. Well, the reason why I ask is because I remember at one point there was a conversation with you about like making a book of the history of the arts in the UAE. And, I, and I'm wondering whether or not since that conversation, which was many years ago at this point, the, whether it's transitioned, is it more about videos and uh, recorded conversations versus some sort of like tangible book product? Of course, the book has been on my mind since the first time we spoke, but I've gone through many iterations of when I want this to be published and when, when do I feel my research and my outlook and insight is mature enough to indoctrinate it within this book? Right now, and as we, I, we all are transitioned to digital world, I feel right now my preferred medium is posts online because it's an easier way to get it across rather than wait to publish a book. I'm not negating the fact that a book is on my radar, but I do feel right now I'd be more keen to consider like a digital ebook that's a smaller book versus doing a massive research book right now. I just, and as I said, I, I just don't feel, I feel like every threshold that I'm crossing now is opening up 10 more questions or an interest that I would be interested in looking at. If you spoke with me five years ago, I would have wanted to just highlight my interviews with artists from the UAE. Then it evolved to artists from the Gulf then the region. Now I'm interested in building bridges between artists from Asia and Syria and Syria to London, to Berlin, to New York, to, you know, like it's, 
changing in terms of what is interesting me. And as I said earlier, what's very important is that sense of feeling relevant and part of that dialogue. So could you give me three names of contemporary artists that you think are noteworthy or that you're t watching these days? Three artists that I would recommend people to follow. Meita Abdullah, Emirati artist based in Abu Dhabi. She deals a lot with painting, but also with mixed media and tries to channel the inner subconscious, inner fantasies within her works. She's running with a bunch of other artists in Abu Dhabi, Beit 15, which is like an artist incubator, homegrown to help build and bridge the gap with artists connecting with other artists. Maitha. Jordan Nasser, Palestinian, I believe Palestinian Polish artist that is dealing with embroidery in his work. He's based in New York and is utilizing the Palestinian Tatriz stitch, the cross stitch that you actually stitch in his works. I did a studio visit with him and it was really interesting to be there. And instead of paints and paint tubes, it was embroidery and, and stitches and fabric. And he actually helped fund a lot of Palestinian women in Palestine and helping to uh, produce these beautiful stitches and, and fabric in his work. So they're, they're beautiful pieces. And there is, you know, sometimes he explores, you know, they almost remind me of Etel Adnan, the Lebanese artist and the, the horizon and landscape works that she does, who's a, a very important modern Lebanese artist. Samia Halabi, of course, she's one of the modern Palestinian artists who is one of the most important in abstract painting. And she's based in New York. I've done a lot of studio visits with her. So she's, she's an important one to, to take a look at. Marvelous. Last question I ask everybody. Some advice for the next generation. I guess for artists, career advice, keep practicing every single day. Like an artist that designates time for art making sparingly throughout the week from my conversations and from my learning about those it's it's an impulsive part of you being an artist and so in every way i just had a conversation with artists just before this they scribble thoughts on a, on receipts they're thinking about work and their dreams and their daydreaming and it's it's part of their life it's like a job you know and so treat it seriously as if it were your job so practice every day question your work and seek critique from other people don't box yourself in there is a fine line between boxing yourself in and then showing others and then being of course influenced by others but there is also a very important part of having critical analysis of works from people who, let's say, are well-informed and who could look at your work and say a cr constructively critical comment that will help you think differently about your work. So don't box yourself in. 
Marvelous. Thank you very much. Thank you. Working in the arts world is a marathon more than a sprint. And oftentimes a lot of things that seem like they're not so important actually are incredibly important later. And that's what I'm here to ask you for. We've learned that star ratings and reviews on the podcast platform through which you're listening are very powerful and influential as to getting us more listeners and more listenership. So I would greatly appreciate it if you would take a second, give us a star rating, give us a comment. It could be something nice. It could be something critical. That's fine. We're good with critical feedback. You hate my stories. I get it. That's fine. Some of them are really bad. But by doing that, what you do is you end up making it so that we will have more listeners. We have more listeners, then we get more guests. We get more guests, you learn more information and knowledge. So this will benefit you directly if you would just take a second and give us a star rating or a review. And we would greatly appreciate it because it will help all of this entire ecosystem. So thank you very much. This podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.